0: while oh, it's thinking about it beautiful there we go okay so as far as i can tell that means that we are live apologies for anyone that was waiting since 11 30 as these are often scheduled and uh, a big apology to anyone that was waiting since um well what was it uh saturday that this video was supposed to go live it's uh very very delayed uh unfortunately i've been just a little bit unwell and um you know one of these things got pushed back and then we got busy and uh you know life happens but obviously it's really good to make sure that we have the time to discuss uh, the topics at, at length and, and allow people to ask the questions that they want to ask about any uh, sort of particular video or topic or disagree with me on anything that, uh, that I brought up there and, and this is obviously a really great forum to do so um now the standard kind of operating rhythm for these is that we will uh, introduce our our guests. Uh, obviously, these Q and A sessions are are really a big factor of of who we have here um, to to offer a range of opinions. Um, now, I am going to do that just because I am on a mission to get through as many questions as possible tonight, as opposed to um, historically what we've done, which is answer one question over the course of of two hours, which is uh, not as efficient as we could be. So. Um, Captain Locke, you all know, he's uh, the senior moderator over on our Discord server. Um, obviously, has a master's in financial related fields, is a fantastic educator, uh, and obviously brings a lot to the table and, and is able to discuss things in really, really detailed manners, but uh, in a way that's super simple, like to the level that I'm even envious of it. Uh, compounded Daily, um, his background is in investment banking, um, but also he makes amazing videos on YouTube that discuss uh, and explore you know, certain aspects of the financial market, um, similar in many ways, I suppose to what I do. But, um, you know, if I do say so myself, his videos are probably better than mine, and certainly much yeah. better produced. And uh, they're on a different topic. So I guess I'm not shooting myself in the foot. I, I case, don't so.
1: I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. I, you know, I I, I definitely think your videos are, are, are better than mine. Ah, well, <laughs> is this the start of the debate already? Mm-hmm. Is this is what we're debating <laughs> on now.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, the, 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 we call this like a Canadian debate um <laughs> um so i'll, I'll introduce sam for us um just so he doesn't accidentally dox me like two minutes into it uh yeah but <laughs> sam, sam's actually my colleague he works with me in in real life uh we both work in finance together um so i thought it would be interesting to have him on yeah he's currently uh, he's currently still uh still studying for high degrees his background is in uh, private equity, and he works with me alongside me in the financial industry here and in the the land down under. Uh, and actually, <laughs> Russell, I I have no idea what your background is, so I'll let you introduce yourself because I would stuff it up. No, oh,
2: no, oh, there you go. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, thanks. I'm. Um, I don't um really have a big background because, well, of my age. I'm. um I'm a bit young. I'm still in upper secondary school, and uh, yeah, I haven't. I have an interesting, uh, I have an interest in the topic at hand and uh, especially geopolitics Um, and the economics of uh, the economic perspective is also uh, one that I'm deeply interested in and uh, I was, uh, I became interested in it because of, well, mostly your videos to be honest and uh, I'm actually, I don't know if I'm going to dox myself, but I'm actually like, I have a background uh, Latino background. And I think I can in some way offer a, a more local perspective to the matter in the politics. Yeah. He's a
0: resident Latino young person. Matters. A resident, resident young person and, and yep. also come on with a bit more of an insight into uh, what I think will be probably one of the more major topics for today, um, which is the economy of Brazil. So it's going to be a two for this, um, this Q&A session because uh, I have missed two. I've been a very naughty boy, I guess. Um, I didn't uh, do the one on Saturday and I didn't do the one on Monday. So those were um, the economy of Brazil and the economics of the art market, respectively. So... Um, what we are going to do now is effectively just open ourselves up to um, just a sort of a general discussion um, around both of the topics. And I think we're just going to, I'm not going to allocate one specific time to art and one specific time to Brazil. I uh, just going to mishmash them all together because uh, I don't know if that's the most efficient way of doing it, but it's certainly um, the laziest way of doing it, which is what I'm going to go with. Uh, but let's we'll start um, primarily with Brazil. And actually I wanted to reach out and I'm glad we got Locke on this um on this for, for this particular topic as well. So thanks for making the time to actually come on um, because you've spoken a lot about uh, investments into underdeveloped or, or developing countries. Uh, now normally when we've made, had that discussion, uh, it's been centered around Africa and and you know you, you've spoken of your attentions to invest uh, into underdeveloped nations in Africa, obviously to to really really sort of take advantage of um, you know the the massive potential for growth in those countries. Uh, what would be your take as, let's say, a potential international investor for Brazil?
3: So I'd love to answer that question right now, but I'm kind of distracted by uh, the comment section because somebody is using my uh, actual name in real life uh, in the comment section, which is not. Uh, I, don't, I, I just need to clarify that I am not that person uh, if they can figure out who that is. Um, so anyway, yeah, to get back on actual topic, um, uh, the I'm way, sorry. Obviously,
0: I, I, um, obviously uh, Captain Locke's real name in real life is Cocaine Supremacy. Right? Yes. We've got him, boys.
3: Yeah, so so sorry, could, could you should repeat the question again. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I, I got you know, really distracted by that, and I was trying to figure out, okay, who's who's trying to dox me right now? And also, which one of my friends is screwing with me right now? <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, well, um, uh, well, I don't know. Anyway, um, that's something else. Now, um,
4: my question was,
0: um, yeah, you've obviously sort of put a, a lot of effort into investing into um, underdeveloped countries, specifically in Africa. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you have a unique perspective of four sort of moving parts that go into investing into, uh, you know, let's be honest, nations that are a little bit more... Um, uh, Flamboyant, I suppose, as as an investment vehicle. Uh, so, what would your take be on on Brazil? Um, you know, with that background and investing in in into these sort of slightly more volatile countries.
3: Yeah, so Brazil uh, definitely ranks lower on volatility. Um, the Petrobras scandal wasn't, you know, very appealing, but. In terms of, you know, what's else on the continent, you know, we're talking about uh, South America and, you know, their nearby neighbors, Argentina, uh, you, if you compare them together, you know, one of Brazil looks like, uh, you know, a stable investment in Argentina is something you would not touch with a 10 foot pole, at least for your average uh, investor who's just getting into uh, international uh, investing uh, with Brazil, you know, we, Brazil has uh, is almost like a, a new America. Because if it's just wealth of materials and the sheer size of uh, the the state itself, Brazil is potentially a huge gold mine for foreign investors. Um, now, with that being said, uh, I mean Brazil is a very uh, is a older country in terms of developing countries. In fact, I really I really hesitate to. Uh, describe them as uh, being developed or, I mean, developing, because they are, they are very much developed um, given their, their past history. Um, but in terms of just overall, uh, you know, stability, when it comes to inve- investing, it's it's a lot easier to invest in Brazil than it is to say, invest in somewhere like Senegal or uh, in uh, the Democratic uh, Republic of the Congo. Or insert any sub-Saharan African country that people don't know a whole lot about, but they just hear you know rumors. Whereas Brazil, if you know, people people travel to Brazil fairly frequently. It's a tourist uh, hotspot. It a lot of people understand uh, what's going on uh, in Brazil, and in addition, the coverage that uh, we give Brazil is you know helps to. Uh, you know, calm investors, so they're not as you know worried. Whereas, investor into Senegal, uh, you know, the news sources that they have, uh, there's not a whole lot of media coverage. Senegal, you'd have to be you look towards like very local um, you know, the uh news, and you don't know what you're really getting from that unless you do a full deep dive. You go and meet the uh, the people behind the paper or behind the news source. Uh, whereas with Brazil. You're more likely to get a larger variety of news uh and news topics and news coverage both in portuguese and in english
0: right so it's it, it it obviously isn't the same level as like let's say investing in the united states exactly um, is it's far more towards that end of the spectrum than it is towards um you know let's say investing in in, in africa now obviously yes. um yeah yeah obviously africa is is basically sort of like in terms of like uh, investment uh nations that's about as risky as you can possibly get um but uh yeah that's interesting because honestly uh, i would have thought with um you know sort of a lot of this this unrest and, and and look you know to be honest pretty stagnant growth over the last decade that it might have been one of those things that's a little bit more um yeah you know sort of a little bit more iffy but yeah i think that that gives us a pretty good yeah pretty good perspective on it because uh, that's one of the big drawbacks of what is going to go into making a nation developed, uh, and that is, hey, you know, um, well, if we if we turn around and and we can't get investment into to build those mines and ports and factories and roads and highways and airports and everything else that we need, oh, well, we're never gonna we're never gonna really get off the ground, or or in Brazil's case, break out of this slump. Uh, I'm sure compounded daily could could give us like a, a regale us with all of the bits and pieces that go into. Uh, all the different types of risk factors with uh, investing in foreign nations. But, um, oh, well, actually, you know, do it. I mean, was there, any, is there anything <laughs> you specifically identifying? Um, you know, obviously there's, there's sovereign risk, you know, foreign yeah. currency risk and everything like that. Would there be anything that you would sort of say that's like, oh, you know, this is this is what you'd actually have to watch out for in, in Brazil?
1: Uh, geopolitical risk. Um, so, you know, you want to make sure that if you're putting capital into another country, um, that the government is there to protect that capital investment rather than, you know, the ability for any individual government to come in and, um, maybe disrupt any sort of, uh, operations of which you've invested into. So, um, you know, like with China, for example, um, for the most part, China is willing, if you put capital into China, they're willing to say, okay, we're going to let that investment flow, right? We're going to let that, um, that capital you put in we're going to you know do everything we possibly can so that you can get a return um but at the same time it could be uh you know an investment into let's say turkey where president erdogan just any other day comes in and says you know what we're going to take control of uh that that uh company that you put capital into and at which in which case that that investment is <laughs> is uh, no longer good so uh, i think geopolitical risk is is certainly a real big one Aside from things like, obviously, currency risk, you want to make sure that, um, you know, their monetary policy is one that is is strong, um, that they're not going to be devaluing their their currency. So, um, but, but, and I think that really all ties into geopolitical risk, in, in my opinion. Um, obviously, you could have a strong government um, that just has poor monetary policy, but um, I think what you tend to see is when you have, uh, you know, for more autocratic governments, that's when you start to see those other problems start to leak out of it. Hmm.
0: Yeah, okay. I think that's that's probably an interesting perspective on it as well. Because um, normally, to be honest, I sort of, I, I sort of see nations as as basically the sum of their governments. Uh, when I see governments like, oh, you know, we've we've had an impeachment and uh, we got this 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 leader that's that's kind of making all kinds of headlines for for all kinds of the wrong reasons, I go, Ooh, you know, that's not somewhere where I want to be parking my money. And I suppose that's a, a more um, detailed breakdown of exactly kind of what's behind that that sort of rationale there. Um, so yeah, I think that that that's really interesting because obviously, uh, you know, foreign investment into the nation is probably going to be what it needs to to kind of get going again, um, but. We will only time we'll say, you know, it'll, 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 and it'll, currently, I
3: mean, currently, right now, we're actually seeing an outflow of investment capital in Brazil. Um, and I was I'm just reading the Financial Times right here. And, uh, you know, they start off uh, by saying that the record outflows underlying investors fear of, of Bolsonaro. But then if you read more into the article uh, and it's the Financial Times, so you know that they're it's good um they really drive home the point that uh you know everything i had been saying uh, about you know brazil is isn't honestly is a historical perspective because we are living in uncertain times brazil right now has record number of of covid cases and you know just a couple days ago they were spiking like crazy now i know when i checked yesterday and the day before that they had dropped drastically which means that and I don't follow Brazil close enough to know exactly what's going on the ground there but um you know in the in the lead up uh, to the present like current day you know the 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 outflow of, of capital from Brazil has been uh you know rather unsettling uh, because it, it it shows that you know investors might not have faith in uh, administrations and you know, let's be honest you know investors across uh all over the world never have faith in another country's administration like that's just a given. Um, but it really shows um, you know that they they don't have faith in maybe the whole Brazil economy. Now that's a sweeping statement to make. so honestly it's, it's really it's, a, it's not something that we can really you know, say definitively but more of here is is uh, what we see.
0: Yeah, and I think I think yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's one of those things that I mean, even unfortunately, big picture um, countries get get judged um, correctly or incorrectly about what's what's seen, what's at the forefront, um, and and I think uh, capital outflows are a really interesting subject because the the other thing that we really do sort of have to discuss, of course, uh, as it relates to Brazil, is a, you know the big sort of the big hitting issue for the country, which is. Um, you know, are they, are they in a middle income trap? Um, so much so that I'll actually even change the banner and and also, um, to the people that are posting burgers in the chat. Um, I, I don't understand it. Uh, maybe I'm too old. Um, but you are also welcome to ask any questions at the end of the day, it's a Q and a, uh, if we're just giving a's, then, um, we are not being awfully productive, but I will change it to the middle income trap. Um, because that is a, a really sort of, um, important i suppose piece of the puzzle for what's going on in brazil uh now does anyone want to run us through what the middle income trap is um because i'm feeling particularly lazy and i don't want to do it you're gonna make me do it all right so uh, yeah, go income... and do it. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. So the middle income trap is the idea that once a country reaches a certain level of prosperity, um, the, the constituents' incomes rise to a level where they're no longer uh, as competitive or competitive at all uh, on an international market, certainly as competitive as they would be in, in, in low-cost manufacturing, which tends to be the driving force behind uh, most developing countries' growth. Take a country like China, for example. I suppose it's the most easy go-to example. Um, it's become extremely wealthy by having a very, very strong manufacturing center. Uh, and now the reason its manufacturing center was able to get so strong is, uh, you know, a little bit there's some currency manipulation and all that kind of stuff there, um, but also because there is a a lot going on with, um, you know, the fact that they just have cheap labor. Um, you know, they went from a primarily agrarian civilization no more than sort of 30, 40 years ago um, that had people basically living in third world conditions. And, you know, if they could earn a dollar a day working in a factory, they would consider themselves very, very, very well off. Um, now, of course, as those factories get built and developed and people, uh, you know, move into increasingly expensive city centers and move into higher paying roles and and develop education systems to make them more efficient and produce more valuable uh, More valuable outputs they demand higher wages and and suddenly you get to a point where you know hey potentially china's on the verge of today uh where you know an average factory worker demands a wage of twelve thousand dollars a year Uh, it doesn't sound like a lot to you or or i in, in a you know a developed um country but to someone in you know an undeveloped or a an early developing country Um, $12,000 is huge. Now, what that means is that labor costs of production, uh, increase to the point where companies, you know, especially international companies that can kind of pick and choose where they do business will go, all right, well, look, it was really cheap to manufacture shit in China when we could get away with paying our workers a dollar a day. But now that we have to pay them, you know, $20 a day, um, you know, it's not looking so great anymore. Um, realistically, I think we'd be better off if we went to Vietnam or Indonesia um, or an African nation or wherever it might be where we can find uh, cheaper labor. Uh, and that is really, really bad because that means that that vehicle for growth effectively gets swept out from under your feet. Um, you lose your industry that is driving people towards this, this wealth. And now that's the typical understanding of it. Um, and, and that's sort of something where people go, oh, okay, well, once you get to a certain spot, um, unless you can pivot and, and move into something else. Um, you're eventually going to stagnate or or even worse go backwards. Uh, and there's a there's a really effective argument to sort of say that well maybe that's what's happened here in Brazil um that we've gone from you know this this nation that was able to take advantage of you know relatively cheap labor and export all these natural resources and you know start to develop these industries and you know commercial farming and stuff like that. And now it's kind of they've gotten used to this this relatively high quality of life and you know suddenly they're actually too expensive. so um you know, if either for, for better or for worse, um, people are, you know, passing over them to do business. Now, that is um, the traditional understanding of a middle income trap. Um, now, is anybody, uh, does anybody want to say anything for or against it before I go into what was ultimately the thesis of this video? Y'all are a very quiet panel. No, we'll
3: no, down. it sounds sounds all good.
0: Okay, beautiful. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I uh, thank you for that. Uh, so, um, now, um, obviously that is great, but a lot of people will turn around and say, okay, well, that seems logical, and I kind of follow that narrative of, you know, poor people become slightly less poor people, and slightly less poor people aren't as cheap as as poor people. Um, you know, no worries there, but. If we look at countries like the United States or, um, you know, anyone, Australia, uh, for example, or wherever it might be, um, you'll see. well, hang on, um, people here earn very significant incomes and and we haven't really sort of stagnated in growth. So what gives? Uh, And that's because we've pivoted into a different industry. Uh, Australia, the United States, nations like Germany, France, the the United Kingdom uh, are not wealthy and they don't, um, you know, they don't sort of grow but two to 3% a year because they have these really strong manufacturing centers. Uh, They grow because they have innovation centers. So they have things like Germany will develop uh, the new Mercedes E class and market it all over the world. Uh, The USA will, uh, I don't know, introduce Amazon Web Services all over the world.
3: I, I do want to point out, like people might, you know, point to, uh, you know, Germany and say, well, they have a lot of manufacturing. Yes, they do. One of the things though that makes it the reason why they haven't been fallen into the uh, middle income trap is because of their innovation when it comes to manufacturing. So we often think of innovation as like, oh, it's, it's got to be super high tech and that no innovation can just mean you do something just a little bit better than somebody else. And so long as you keep doing, it, as long as you keep going at that, I mean, that's innovation in a nutshell doesn't have to be, uh, you know, creating the next app or creating something new and exciting Uh, because if it makes people money at the end of the day, uh, that's exciting enough for your average business person.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And hey, I mean, uh, innovation as it relates to, let's say, Germany. Um, a really important thing to take away from that. And let's explore it from the lens of Germany. I think that's probably a good one because a lot of people, if you say, oh, why is Germany rich? They'll be like, oh, because it has a you know Porsche and Mercedes and BMW and Audi and all of these, these places, and they build lots of stuff and German engineering, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's not incorrect, but it's not the whole picture. Um, Germany is wealthy because they develop the companies that build those sorts of things. Um, so they build... Um, you know, well they they develop and design uh, new cars that are that are world leading, um, and and are demanded all over the world. Effectively, what it comes down to is countries like that are able to leverage global supply chains and global markets. If Germany was to produce every single uh, BMW and Mercedes and Audi and Volkswagen and and whatever else they have. Uh, you know bosch and, and you know all of their all of their sort of brands i'm sure you can sort of name gem brands almost indefinitely you they wouldn't be able to do that on shore um you know they just don't have the capacity to do it uh they don't have the infrastructure they don't have the factories they probably don't even have the manpower to do it but because they have these really well-renowned brands um they have factories in the united states they have factories in china they have factories uh in mexico they have factories all over the world Um, that are making components or or actually, you know, manufacturing entire vehicles or whatever it is. Uh, And then they're selling it to other markets. Sometimes, you know, a Mercedes motor car will never even touch German soil. Uh, It'll, you know, it'll be made in China and then sold to someone in South Korea. Um, And still it is. But the key thing to
3: keep in mind for everyone out there who's now questioning, well, if it's, you know, made everywhere else, why is it in German? Well, it's because the one it was originally made in German, but all the technology was developed by those corporations um and what they're effectively doing is they're not just holding you know the rights to it but they're also you know uh facilitating the continuation of those ideas because if you know let's say uh those foreign uh, or the, the factories that they have abroad, if some were to seize those factories, let's say, you know, we set up a we set up uh, a BMW plant in Senegal for whatever reason, let's just say it works out because it's a good investment. Don't have to go into why it's a good investment. Let's just say hypothetically it was And the Senegalese uh, government says, well, this is now ours. Um, great. You know, I mean, or or let's say the, whatever car company uh, takes a hit, uh, but they are now going to be a disconnect between the innovation and knowledge necessary to run that factory and you know what BMW or whatever the car company they continue to have so this this uh you know this hypothetical like singulies now factory which previously made let's let's say BMWs doesn't have the knowledge or capacity to actually make those BMWs and so that's where uh yeah. it's so when people people are like, well, we why why should a company be able to do this stuff abroad? It's yeah,
2: uh,
0: and I think I think the other thing is, is even if um, even if they wrote learned everything. So let's say you you, you set up a company, like you say you set up an auto plant in Senegal um, to produce your BMWs, right? Um, you know, there is potentially an even argument that to be said is so long as they can keep on getting, um, you know, so long as they can keep on getting supplies, so you know, component parts and. And materials and everything that they need, uh, chances are they'd probably be able to keep the factory running. There's probably no, no issues there. And well, outside of catastrophic failure or anything like that, I'm sure they'd be able to do it. I think more so the problem comes when it's like, oh, okay, well, here you are producing a 2015 model year BMW 3 Series, Actually, the world is demanding a 2020 uh, model year three series, which is upgraded and it has a a new turbocharged engine that's, you know, 20% more efficient it has a 10 speed gearbox instead of an eight speed gearbox. And they wouldn't have the knowledge on how to engineer that, um, how to engineer the upgrades. And that's why, um, you know, the countries that are centers for innovation basically get to profit the difference off the work of other people. Um, Is it, is it morally correct? Um, Yeah, I think it's just fine because, you know, the argument is that, well, if it wasn't for uh, the innovation of these other countries, this this hypothetical factory in Senegal, one might have never existed, or two would be producing, you know, objectively inferior goods that are just going to get decimated on the world market anyway. Um, So realistically, it's probably a win-win, but it's much more of a win for the people that sort of drive that innovation.
3: And this is why, at the end of the day, knowledge is important and learning is important.
0: Yes. If you want to,
3: if you want to change the world, you just got to be more knowledgeable than the next guy.
0: Yeah, like my boy Ty Lopez would say. Absolutely. Um, I'm kidding, of course. Jesus, that guy's a hack. But anyway. Um, all right. So I'm going to open the floor up to a ridiculously controversial topic. Um, but that's all right. Everyone's very sensible here. Um, So I've got no fear in in asking it. Um, So this was from Michael Rangs on the live stream chat. Uh, And the question is, could being open to immigration help solve the middle income trap problem? Discuss.
1: As in, um, you know, keep, keep wages relatively lower compared to the, I guess, the kind of area in which you would consider the middle income trap.
0: Yeah, well I suppose that might be a solution to the problem. Um yeah, I mean I suppose
1: Yeah, so it's an interesting uh it's an interesting thought. So um you know, I was reading something most recently that, you know, um kind of, you know, despite whatever sentiment you may feel, um that in the United States we need more immigrants because there's a lot more jobs that we just cannot fill. Uh, that are going to be created, I think, in the next five to 10 years. Right. And with that, um, you know, if if there's nobody willing to, let's say, come over and actually do those jobs then we're going to be in a very tough situation, we're going to have to um, maybe import whatever products, goods or goods or or even perhaps services um, that we're looking for immigrants to fill. Right. So um, it, it could. Could that, you know, I, if, if you if you take a mean of all income at that point and suggest that maybe these immigrants are coming in and working, uh, let's say, the lower income jobs, then I suppose the mean will kind of push it towards the lower end. But I don't necessarily think that and, and I don't know for sure um, if they make up a significant portion to really affect that. Um, but in general could could being open to immigration help solve the middle-income trap? I think yes, but it would have to be a consistent flow of, of um, num- one new jobs into um, immigrants and um, That's, so that's just my take on it.
3: My take on it is it's um, It's only one part of uh, the solution. I wouldn't use it as just the sole Part uh, of the solution. So, consider where um, a country, you know, that's let's say the right in the middle of the income trap. They're they're stuck head into it. Like they're they're really in there. Uh, in that case, you know, one of the more effective solutions would be actually focusing on innovation rather than finding cheaper labor. Um, it, it's it, because what you're essentially doing, if you find the cheaper labor. Um, you're hoping that the person that, that replaces that labor can then go and find, you know fill a job that's more that they're more qualified for. Um, that one that demands you know a higher level of education and innovation. But that assumes that it's actually there. Um, so one so it's more of opening up uh, immigration is really has to have a second part to it. Now, if a country already has, you know, is already pushing for innovation, immigration might actually uh, help. Um, And also, I I I I don't want to point to what China did, but uh, I mean, we when this is more a question for you. Like, was China ever really in an income trap?
0: Well, not really. Uh, Yeah, I mean, they they saw it coming and they 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 innovated around it, and effectively now they. Yeah, they have they they've the solutions. The problem they they have companies that are internationally recognisable uh, and are yep. gaining function in a, an international market. And they are driving innovation of their own, um, which means that they've probably done the right things, right? Uh, but I, I, I use it as a because everyone everyone knows China, everyone knows the story of China, I
3: guess. Yeah, um, and but in that sense, I was thinking of more of like what China has been doing. I don't know with the with the Silk Road with uh, in, uh diplomatic. Um, Bringing people from other nations in to study, but that's not really, you know, replacing the cheap labor. They're more like bringing them in so that they can then send them back, so that they can use the Chinese company's equipment and products and all that, and effectively be, you know, uh, a foreign Chinese, um, like, um, I wouldn't say agent or or person or citizen, or but they're basically, you know, they're like, oh, China helped me. I like China. That's fine, yeah. um, but like with, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, we're talking about Brazil, so I don't know about immigration. So that's why I put really pushed towards like the idea of innovation first before immigration. So in this sense, immigration is more of a question: what comes after?
0: Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's a really good question. It sort of touches on on what I think my answer to this question will be, and uh, and obviously I'll have to be very delicate about it. But before I do get into it, um sam or a rational optimist do you want to make any comments or anything that you wanted to add to, to that sort of question or any particular hot take that you have on it
4: uh to be honest you guys kind of already um touched on what i what i was thinking uh, i i do think honestly uh in regards to the question itself uh, immigration would definitely be important um but it's all about like sustainability uh because otherwise if you can't sustain like you know immigration with you know the, the right infrastructure uh, then uh, I just feel like you're essentially just diluting the pool. Essentially, just like, as you said, uh, you're just essentially forcing more uh, low income jobs and if they're having an infrastructure to learn, uh, to again, innovate, then essentially just repeating the same problem. Uh, but in all as well, I'm not really too educated on the topic, which is, which is why I haven't really chimed in too much, but uh, I think we're on the right track in terms of immigration, definitely part of the solution, but definitely not the end or and be all to solve the whole uh, income middle trap problem.
0: All right, and Rational Optimus, anything else that you wanted to add? Um, because I think everyone's added something. And, and obviously, my answer is not gospel or anything, but but I, it is. Um... No, okay, beautiful. Well, uh, oh, go ahead. Go yeah. ahead. Sorry, sorry.
2: Yes. Uh, well, yeah, everyone has, um, Sam noted out, everyone has laid out every, basically everything you can say uh, about the problem. And uh, to respect to Michael's question, I think that immigration is... Um, it helps, of course, and uh, as uh, Captain Locke uh, suggested, it's it needs to be done in an orderly fashion, or I think it was compound daily. No, but another important part to remember is that um, it's not only like, well, how does the process work out in other countries and um, what does the process looks like? What does the process look like? And uh, if you only think about humans and employment numbers, uh, then you're, Ignoring a large or a soon-to-be large component of the discussion about employment and that is uh, automation and uh, It's it hasn't been mentioned a lot in this discussion. So I think that Repetitive labor and in other words most of labor uh, Will be able to be done by robots and automated systems within well within just a couple of years. I mean um, I don't know who has read the the War on Normal People by uh, Andrew Yang, but he discusses um, the possible effects of this phenom- phenomenon, and um, yeah, it's, it it could be like an interesting um, perspective to the middle income trap, yeah, and, uh, such.
0: Yeah, actually, that does add an extra dynamic. Now, um, I think this this answer, this question is is very very loaded. And obviously, there's there's a lot um, of wildly differing opinions on, on. You know, one of the
3: things that we didn't consider though is is the income trap even a thing? Is it actually real? <laughs> uh, because you know, I'm just googling stuff right now, and I'm just like. I found I came across that. I'm like, ah, I'm just going to throw that out there. Is this even real? Here's that's a question that we maybe should be asking before we even say Does it doesn't need to be solved. <laughs> Is it actually yeah. an issue?
0: <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's something that's relatively uh, relatively well documented. Now there are a few countries yeah. that just kind of breeze on through it, and uh, and maybe it's and maybe there are under other underlying issues. But if we take the assumption um, that it's a real thing, then we really need to to answer the question sort of break it down into. Like what is effectively component parts, um, so could being open to immigration help solve the middle income trap problem? I the first thing that we need to actually address with that is is what is the problem of the middle income trap, and that is the idea that um, that your economy will st- be stuck at a certain income level. So to solve the middle income trap problem, you effectively want to to raise the the you know quality of life of Uh, of your citizens. So it's almost like fighting fire with fire. The way out of the middle income trap um, is to become wealthier. The way into the middle income trap is to have become wealthier. Um, So it's one of those sort of catch-22 sort of situations that you find yourself in there. Now, to answer the question, um, I would actually say no. Um, Being open to immigration will not help you solve uh, the middle income trap problem. It's not the solution. Now, Immigration, as it applies to um, many countries and growth, is is one of those things that's it's really really strong. Uh, there's a very very strong correlation between especially skilled migration uh, and economic prosperity. Uh, it's one of the most strongly related correlations in in you know macroeconomic and, and geopolitical theory out there. Um, it, it really does go beyond a shadow of a doubt that that's a thing. Um, but it's not a one size fits all solution to every problem out there. It's not a penicillin. Um, Now, all that would do is if you, let's say you find yourself in a situation like Brazil right now, Um, you know, your average income per per capita is sort of around that $10,000 a year mark. Um, Sorry, per capita GDP is around that $10,000 mark, which is bang on the the middle income trap kind of zone, Um, you know, the the danger zone, if you will. Now, you would sort of say, okay, well, look, let's hypothetically bring a whole lot more people in um, to fill our factories with more cheap labor. Well, what does that do? All that does is adds more competition for the people that have, you know, sort of now found themselves in jobs where they're earning $10,000 a year. If we, you know, bring a shit ton of, of extra labor in to fill out, you know, positions in in Brazilian factories or Brazilian mines or, um, you know, whatever it is, or Brazilian factory farms, um, you know, regular Brazilian citizens are going to you know, find themselves in a lot more competitive job market. They're going to be forced to take lower wage jobs. Uh, it's not going to be a great outcome for them if anything it's going to push their incomes back down uh, on at least on a per capita level the actual growth of the nation will will continue to grow um, you know if you if you bring on that and you know you drive down those wages and and you have more people in an economy uh, you know sure your, your economy is going to grow but on a uh, per capita basis it'll either be stagnant or potentially even go backwards um, what it can do uh, is you know, give you a, you know, cradle that kind of growth for just that little bit longer, kind of keep the keep the good times going for a little bit. Um, but on an individual level, no, it's not going to solve it. Uh, if anything, it might do the exact opposite. Now, that is assuming that we're basically um, bringing in cheap labor a- a- as, you know, migration to fill out, um, you know, the factory floors that have become too expensive to fill with our own citizens. Is that the solution? Absolutely fucking not. No way. Um, but doesn't mean that immigration can't be a solution. What potentially could work is bringing on board people that do have the capacity to drive innovation. You know, bring on board you know expatriates from um, you know other countries that have in, you know information on on how to turn you know basic factories into advanced manufacturing facilities, or you know market new and innovative products all around the world, or you know set up universities and you know centers for innovation within the nation that would be the kind of innovation that would actually get you out of the middle income trap um but as for a blanket solution um no no uh, you just it, like migration is just it's 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 one of those things that um it, it solves a shit ton of problems in in an economy but it doesn't solve this problem um but i think that's it's really an interesting question for exactly that reason um, now as it relates to um, some other countries like let's say uh, let's take Japan, for example. um now this this is not a middle income nation. japan is is absolutely a, a developed nation. It's you know one of the wealthiest nations in the world, even on an individual level. Um, now it would be a nation that benefits from um, migration. The reason that it's different from a country like Brazil is, of course, primarily it's it's already a, an advanced nation. It's already got very really high incomes. and um, you know, it, it's already kind of got a lot of innovation and things like that, um, but what it probably needs is is a little bit of a younger labour force to actually properly realise the productive potential of the nation, uh, rather than the other way around, where Brazil, um, you know, has, has realised its productive potential and hasn't made that step to innovation yet. Um, so it's an interesting question. I don't know if anyone sort of necessarily agrees or disagrees with my, um, you know, my sort of conclusion there. Um, I'm, I'm happy to sort of accept someone that comes out and says that's complete nonsense uh, and I really do want to be delicate about it because I know that being adverse to to immigration in any capacity is um you know gonna gonna cause some flack but uh, that is oh how
3: dare you say that no no immigra- I'm joking no I, I I understand where you're coming from um my that's that's one of the things I was thinking about with with Brazil like immigrating people immigrating to Brazil um, it's in this uh, I, I'm not sure of Brazil's immigration policy but m- my whole thing was you know I was thinking first and foremost um, innovation before immigration um, and, and then there's the whole idea of, of you know how many people are really immigrating to Brazil well now that I said out loud I'm gonna go look that up
0: yeah, there you go. I think, um, yeah, it would be, be an interesting sort of statistic to look at. And the other thing is, well, uh got to be recognised with Brazil. Um, their primary language is Portuguese. Not a lot of people speak Portuguese. Um, so it makes it not necessarily like a super attractive country for um, for a lot of, you know, people to, to immigrate to, even if they were going into a, you know, sort of highly paid position where they'd be bringing a lot of in- information. Now... I'm going to start slowly mixing this in with the economics of art because I realized we've done exactly the same thing. We've answered one question and we've taken 45 minutes to do so. So before we do that, I'm going to uh, open up the next question and then we're going to pivot to art. So if anyone has any questions about the economics of art, please ask that because I think we've got like at maximum half an hour left and I made a terrible, terrible mistake. So, Um, oh, sorry, go ahead, Professional Optimist.
2: I think that. Another important aspect here is uh, society, and in society's perspective, uh, as you named, um, Brazil actually, well, in immigration being a possible solution for Brazil's middle income trap, um, as you know, it's not really known if it is actually a problem, the middle income trap, and we're continuing to having a discussion about that. But I also think that it's um, important to think that. Since the society needs to, um, people that enter a new society will, will have to integrate to a certain level. It's harder for Spanish speaking people to integrate into Portuguese, well, than the than the other way around. Because uh, in my personal experience, it's uh, Portuguese. Yes, it's similar in the um, in its origins to Spanish, but it's still uh, th- there's still some difference. And I think it, and I don't really think that immigration would be a good solution because you're just prolonging the problem of the middle income trap that you just have even more and more people that are uh, exiting the manufacturing business and going into service Uh, brazil has the largest population correct me if i'm wrong um, of latin america and it also has an extremely high unemployment and poverty rate a lot of people could use some some labor so i don't think that importing more people that are searching for labor when there are already people that need labor is necessarily a good um, solution now however i would um, like to say that uh, captain lockett had a good point about you need more skill and less uh, i don't i don't want to be cold-hearted when i I'm referring to uh, amount of humans uh, that you have you want to have some uh, expertise you know to develop and uh, also you need to have inclusive institutions that actually protects economic assets or investments and that's something that's well Latin America is quite famous for not being so good at shielding uh, investors Uh, capital Uh, Bolivia is one example because they are so like uh, they have some sort of post-traumatic stress disorder when it comes to foreign nations investing in in them and they have they do have a point in that but it just leads to that they uh, restrict foreign investment to this to a certain degree that no amount of well like if you haven't if you make an capital investment in Bolivia there's no guarantee that it will be secured in any way and with political turmoil comes the question of how protected are my assets or my investments in the region and that's something that I think Chile solves better than most of the other nations such as Brazil and Brazil is so unstable and it doesn't really unstable sorry And it's and it's it doesn't have sufficient internal integration, uh, both physical and. um, Well, never mind, I do think they have a at a society level, they are well integrated because they're all Portuguese. They're all Brazilian, but they do have the lack of physical integration like infrastructure and um, transit from all its major economic hubs and population hubs. Um, so that's also one big problem for their economic. Uh,
3: yeah. Story. And yeah, we've uh, I think I, I, I talked to some people about that over on the Discord and uh, I explained I tried kind to of, uh, explain to them, you know, uh, Brazil's just insane geography um i don't know if uh geography uh now or that youtuber has done a video on brazil but if he has i you know i'd recommend go watching it uh so you can you guys can understand just just how insanely huge Brazil is and uh the population is just so spread out i think in your video you mentioned population uh islands and yeah that's that's what that's pretty much what it seems um So I went and pulled up the immigration uh, for Brazil and I did some calculations because I could only find it per 1000 population. Uh, But according to my calculation, somewhere around uh, less than 20,000 people immigrated to Brazil uh, last year.
0: Wow, there you go. I'd actually imagine that would probably be less than, than, than the people that have left. Or is that a net net result?
3: That is net migration.
0: Oh, okay, net migration. So, okay, okay. yeah, they're, they're, still, they're, still, they're still sucking people in, but, but barely. yeah,
3: very barely. Um, considering the United States, which has a uh, a three for every one thousand people, and Brazil has point zero seven two per thousand people. I mean, those are magnitude difference. Um,
0: yeah. yeah, so they go, huge. There goes for show. Yeah. Um, now, I really want to quickly touch on on um, uh, this question here. Uh, isn't the middle income trap a problem of manufactured good exporters because of the impact of labour costs in manufactured productions? Brazil's main exports are natural resources. Great question and um, it's probably worth addressing that, yes, the middle-income trap is primarily for manufacturers um, because it tends to be the most labour-intensive type of value-adding. Mining, of course, a majority of the value is already sitting there. You've just kind of got to get it out of the ground. Um, But uh, any kind of industrialising centre is still going to go through um, the the middle-income trap. Um, Now, it won't be as direct as if they were a manufacturing centre, but it still will be there. Um, things cost more as people earn more it's just uh, the general nature of inflation uh, so it still does impact uh you know nations like um like a and obviously you know natural resources are a major component of their exports but uh you know a big one still things like uh you know farm uh farming products like you know um soybeans and, and and stuff like that make up a you know a good healthy portion of their exports and uh, you know obviously, as farmers earn more, they demand higher margins for you know their exports, and they'll they'll pass along higher prices to their end consumers. So uh, unfortunately, no matter what industry you in, you are in, um you are you know going to feel the impacts of the uh, middle income trap, maybe to a lesser extent than someone that's as directly exposed as a manufacturing nation, but uh, you will still feel it. Uh, does anyone have anything else to add on to that? Because we're going to go into lightning uh, round and answer as many damn questions as we can. Oh, go ahead.
2: Yeah, yeah. Up. I want to add something and that's something uh, connected to society. And from my experience, a very sensitive topic uh, in politics in Latin America is social spending. And that's almost like if you're a candidate and you're saying that, no, we don't need any social spending, we want economic development they everyone's just gonna throw rocks at you on leaving that meeting or discussions so, on because it's so, so it's so ingrained I mean it's so popular because uh, for example in uh, Venezuela they put everything the survival of their regime on just having people uh, having very high levels of uh, or receiving very high levels of social spending and that all collapsed when, uh, well, yeah, the oil prices just went uh, belly up, and uh, we saw we see the result of that to this day. And one problem is like how economic institutions handle um, handle spending, but also uh, diversify their if they diversify their income or not. Uh, and a lot of the traps that these, these nations fall into is that they only focus on their natural resources and not their the intelligence because you have smart people and they come from the universities and such but they, they they just leave the country because they know that their institutions are not strong enough to just reinforce an economy that's based on intelligence. And as Captain Locke pointed out, that's what you need. At this point, to develop even further,
0: yeah, and I think so, that that's certainly. And hey, you know, oftentimes even mining can um, can be a detriment to that. You know, you see people that would have otherwise gone on to develop, uh I don't know, the the, the next greatest battery or um, some kind of iPhone that has you know a ten thousand megapixel camera or you know the next you know SpaceX spacecraft or whatever it might be, and uh, and instead. Of uh, applying their engineering expertise to, to really developing you know cutting edge technology they go into mines because ah it's you know it pays better um, so if yeah. anything it can actually be a brain suck now I don't yeah. want to cut you off there but we do have sort of probably about fifteen minutes left and we've completely neglected the other topic of discussion which I feel terrible about and I knew this would happen but we're going to get onto it right now so Brazil what what Brazil what uh, we are now discussing art so. I want to uh, first pass it along to Compounded Daily because um, he actually has made a fantastic series on his own YouTube channel uh, about alternative investments. I definitely recommend going to watch that. And I know he has a lot of insights about it. We were chatting before this, so um, I'm putting you on the spot here, Compounded Daily. Give us a, a an interesting in look into um, the world of um, you know art.
1: Yeah, um, so uh, art in general um, is just one of many, many, many forms of alternative investing. And kind of like EE explained in his video, uh, when you own a piece of art, uh, it's not really providing any value. I mean, it sits on your wall, you look at it and um, it's kind of like, well, 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 cool, you know, uh, interesting. And some of the most abstract art um, where it looks like someone just threw a paintbrush and through paint all over a canvas is sometimes some of the most valuable art. Um, How? uh, I don't understand, but um, the point is if there's somebody willing to pay uh, a particular amount for it because it is might have been created by um, some famous artist or um, you know uh, has some very important meaning behind it. Maybe it was created in a particular time period and uh maybe some dictator throughout history has owned it before uh then it is assigned i suppose a uh, some some value right so the idea of investing in art is not necessarily investing in the sense of uh you know you put your capital into something uh the the capital continues to generate value by maybe selling product or um uh getting any sort of uh True value, I suppose, it appreciates much in the same way that, um, you know, I suppose Bitcoin might appreciate or gold might appreciate it. it, it I, I hate to, it's not creating value, but you're hoping that the price will go up because as time goes on, there might be more people. And as more people have that sort of wealth that could demand something like that. Um, then somebody is willing to sort of auction, or a few people are willing to auction for it and maybe pay a higher price than you paid for it. Um, So art in rare art is just one form of alternative investing. There's uh, stringed instruments um, are another form of alternative investing, which, uh, and and alternative investments, I'm I'm talking about quite literally uh, strange asset alternative investments. I mean, of course, there's alternative investments that, um, range from anything from structured investments to uh, um, to uh, the things I'm talking about right now. So um, yeah. it's and, rare. And, and, go ahead.
0: And, and with and with this, where would you draw the line? Now, would you um, go so far as to say that they it's, it's purely just speculation? Like there's, uh, yeah, there's no substance to it as as an actual genuine investment? Um, or you know, hey, maybe. Uh, maybe there's something that I don't see um, in, in a way that this kind of thing actively contributes to society because there's, a, there's an interesting parallel to be drawn here. Mm-hmm. Um, people people will say, and you sort of said it there, and, and you know, what, to, be, to be honest, I sort of say it. I enjoy a nice piece of art. You know, it brightens up my room a little bit. But uh, I don't know I don't know about dropping 150 million dollars on a piece of artwork. You know, maybe I'm just not rich enough. Um, who knows? Um, but um, the argument that people sort of say is, oh, well, you know, this is just something that is just sitting there it doesn't really add or produce anything it just kind of sits there and does does nothing And uh, now the argument that i would sort of turn around and say is well yeah i guess so in a sense i mean it does sort of produce something it gives you some kind of tangible value and the fact that yeah hey, you know it looks pretty uh, maybe you get to brag about it to your other rich friends uh, or, or whatever it might be and you know that that's something um but in many ways is that too dissimilar from let's say real estate uh, in this, in the same way, and if we're not talking about commercial real estate. If we're talking about, you know, let's say, residential real estate, um, does it actually produce anything? You know, is it is it one of those things where, you know, it kind of just sits there? Sure, you know, it, it has some value in the same way that art has some value in the fact that it can house people. You know, art, you know, you know, adds It produces
3: commissions. It. That's about it. I'm yeah, well, <laughs>
0: but um, you know, look, art you know, gives, gives me a bit of visual flair and a house gives me some shelter. Obviously one's probably more important, <laughs> right. um, but in the same sense, you know, they're, they're pretty much parallel um, and that they have, you know, a little benefit, but they're not actually producing anything. They're not adding value to anything. They are kind of just this inert um, asset. So For, um, yeah, would, would, I would sort of say, and, and I don't want to put words in your mouth that you would sort of say that uh, investing into a piece of art or a Stradivarius violin or, you know, a, bottle of you know louis the 13th cognac uh, it's, it's speculating right yeah it's, it's, it's speculating you're kind of counting on the fact that someone somewhere in some time in the future is going to pay you more than you paid
1: right um, it you're you're, you're you're bet you're betting on the 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 idea that there's going to be more wealthy people who demand to have these individual luxuries in their house so that they can show them off to their friends i mean hypothetically if we entered a future where you know we had tons you know all of civilization just looked at people who owned expensive art as as just terrible people and it just became so taboo then a lot of that would i suppose lose its value right but i don't really think that we're going to enter uh um that 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 sort of kind of uh period but in in a sense you are speculating because um what's to say that you know the the louis <laughs> louis the 13th cognac that you talked about is going to be uh you know desired in the future what if what if revelations come out about louis the 13th and you know we realized he was much more of a worse person than you know we we actually like so the value of this cognac that he owns just appreciates tremendously um if
0: anything, I'd, I'd say that probably appreciate the value to be honest
1: right. with you. i mean look it's it's The reason why you would own something like that in the first place is exactly the reason why you would spend two million dollars on a Wu Tang album, right? Um, You're an asshole. (laughs) In part, yeah, because your name is Martin (laughs) Scorsese. So because, yeah, because 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 you just want something that nobody else has. You want the exclusivity of saying oh, I owned, uh, you know, a Stradivarius violin that was played by Mozart or something like that. It's it's all the exclusivity factor and and nothing more to it.
4: Yeah, I understand I agree with that, actually, because if, if you, like, really have to think about it, uh, it's a pretty, like, closed market in the sense that these are all, like, extremely high net worth people who have just a lot of cash to blow. And I feel if I was ever in a position where I just had millions and millions of dollars, which I can kind of just... You know, throw away or something. Yeah, it'd be pretty cool to own, like, you know, something like that. Or uh, there's, there's always a story I go back on where um, I, I believe it was one of these Russian oil agarcs, uh at the time, a Saudi Arabian prince uh, owned the biggest yacht in the world, and the oil guy simply just made his yacht like an inch bigger, just as kind of like a dick measuring contest. Yeah, I, just I like, that as well. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I think like, it's just like, on all honesty, like sometimes with these like, you know, art or any other sort of vehicle, it's just kind of like a dick measuring contest sometimes. <laughs> right. uh, but at the flip side as well, uh, using a video as a, as a, as a reference point, um, definitely can be used for some, let's say ulterior motives, uh, sense of, you know, let's say, uh, you know, obviously trying to minimize your taxes, money laundering even uh, in some cases. Um, so let's, let's uh, talk
3: about the money laundering because people I, ask uh, questions about that. Can we, do we have time for that or?
0: Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll have time for that. We'll, we'll get it all wrapped up in 15 minutes. All right, so we'll it. come back to it. Um, one, one of the, uh, oh, now, now I'm sort of completely lost uh, my train of thought. Now, one of the, um, well, sort of one of the things I did want to sort of touch on was, um, I don't know, is, is there anyone that would sort of challenge the idea that a house, you know, residential investment um is is no different than than an un- investment in art they're both nerd assets that have you know a little bit of you know um you know uh, what's the word i'm looking for uh some some kind of you know you know inherent value in the sense that they provide some kind of service but outside of that you know you're kind of primarily relying on the fact that um you know someone else, buy it for a higher price i feel like
3: this is this is an easy one to answer e because you know a house you know, is shelter. I could, you know, find shelter under a Van Gogh painting, but I feel like I, there's, it's better on the wall. But in the house, you know, you also, you know, it's where you sleep. You spend a lot of your time. You can also be productive in your house. I'm joking. I mean, uh, but I, I get what you mean by the the inert value. Uh, and I I feel like a lot of people point to asset bubbles in the sense that it's just in these the prices of of these things are inflated because you know, they're in a prime location or like in the case of a house is in a prime location or because um, it's an exclusive thing like with art um, and the price, you know, the price must always go up for these types of assets, we think. But uh, I would I'd love to go like find examples of stuff that was at one point one super expensive because it was exclusive and because it was rare. And then it depreciates in value because it's just no longer like the collectible anymore. I want to really go see that kind of stuff. Maybe yeah. there's art out there that just well, isn't I mean, as valuable today.
0: I mean Beanie Babies, I suppose, if you call them If you could call them out, you know, people were sort of saying, "Oh, well, you know there's only going to be this this amount of them, you know, ever produced and they'll keep on going up and down." Yeah, and it's, yeah maybe the same yeah, but, kind of thing.
3: But yeah, I'm really we, look, I'm really thinking about stuff that was, you know, that genuinely was doesn't just have any collectors anymore because they've all died off or because people kind of realize that why am I collecting these things? And then everyone slowly starts realizing that. And then, you know, there's just somebody who comes along and says, Oh, I might be able to make money on this, but then they never do. And so they quit. And then the next person and it's a cascading effect of of just decreasing value. I really want to so, go find that
1: now. So this this one also oh, go ahead. Well, I, I was commanded. I was just gonna say to quickly answer your question. I i i would argue that in a way you could say that it does provide provide value in the same way let's say um you know as, as one of the human needs is is going out and, and and eating right so you know food restaurant might or a restaurant might provide value to you uh in the same way that you know your house could provide the value of sleep because that is a necessity and for everybody other than ee you know we all sleep um you know if you're ee you're pumping out videos 24 seven so um, you know, uh, I, I would I would argue that it does provide some sort of value.
0: Yeah, All right. yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, uh, I, I, the the argument that I'm trying to make is is you know, sleep and shelter. Obviously, it's much further down in Maslow's hierarchy of needs than like, you know, <laughs> visual stimulation from a piece of art. Right. You know, effectively, the same thing. Right. Uh, really now, the last thing I'll say before we uh, get on to the money laundering aspect of it is, uh, th- there is there is something to be said for. Um, you know, these rarefied pieces, and I think what that gives them a lot of value, um, is this. So, I'm actually myself a, a relatively avid watch collector of all things. I don't know if you guys could take that out from my videos, and I always sort of mention what I can hear one. you playing
3: with it in the background right now.
0: No, that's a sheer Swiss knife. Oh, inevitably, inevitably gonna cut myself with. I'm also a Ooh. fiddler, uh, freaking cannot keep my hands still, but anyway, uh, that's all that's all to the side, but. Um, one of the one of the interesting things about watches is uh, obviously there's there's different tiers of watches right you know you've got your standard generic you know you go to the shopping mall and you, know, you maybe spend 200 bucks on a watch and it'll tell time and you know eventually after a year or two it'll it'll break down and you get another one no worries and then maybe the next one up where they put like a a fashion house label on it and it's effectively the same watch that you would have got for 200 bucks but maybe it's got i don't know armadi on it and they charge you 500 dollars for it and it you know eventually sort of works its way up to um, you know, mid-level prestige watches and then, you know, sort of, I suppose, where you kind of really get into, you know, sort of almost like investment-grade pieces, which is like Rolex-level watches. Um, so one of the interesting things that I sort of thought and and one of the, um, you know, really interesting sort of uh, ways that I, I, maybe I've justified this, this watch collecting habit to myself or, um, you know, maybe I'm actually genuinely smart. Uh, you tell me. Uh, is the fact that, well, look, um, you know, I like wearing watches and, you know, it, I don't know, complements my suit if I wear into the office or whatever it might be. Um, but I get some value out of it. Now, I could go into a shop and and buy a $500 watch or a $200 watch and, you know, they break every year. And it, so it almost becomes like an expense. Uh, or I could buy a Rolex for $10,000. Um, It will probably last me for a very, very long time because they're just inherently a lot stronger and they come with basically lifetime warranties, you can always send them off to Switzerland and they'll basically rebuild it for you. Um, And if anything, it's going to maintain its value Uh, or historically what's happened is they've actually appreciated in value, you know they've gone from being worth you know $5,000. 10, 20 years ago to, to now they're $10,000. And, you know, obviously there's protections for them to keep on improving. So uh, the actual cost of ownership for um, what is a $10,000 watch is less than my cost of ownership for a $500 watch. Uh, and obviously a big advantage of that is if you pull out a Rolex, it's uh, it's a lot more impressive than pulling out I don't know, a Seiko or, or whatever it may be. Um, so it's almost like once you get to a certain level, um, it becomes a collector's item, it becomes a rarefied item, it becomes a prestige item that holds its value. Uh, And the same thing could be said for art. Obviously, if I went down to Ikea and filled my house with Ikea prints, yeah, you know, worries, it's going to cost me like a thousand bucks tops. But, you know, if I went to resell those, I'd have absolutely no hope in hell of reselling them. And the same is probably true up until, you know, you've spent about $100,000 on on artwork for your house. But if you spend $5, 10000000 million on a well-campaigned artist, well you know obviously you get the benefit of of having maybe slightly more beautiful paintings i mean that's all very objective and and i don't really comment on what is art um but you also have the advantages in worst case scenario you probably sell them and potentially even make a profit so the fact that they have this uh the the fact that they have this idea of it being an investment uh is what causes it to be an investment i think that's how a lot of people justify these relatively absurd prices
3: so, and I do, and I do want to point out somebody in the comment just asked, uh, the "Jesus Insider." I think we've seen him before. He he asked, "But couldn't you make more money putting that money into a regular investment?" And uh, I would answer that yes, you could. But the key thing, to keep in mind, is when he's doing this, that you're not. Uh, this isn't your only investment. It's not like you you're spent your entire portfolio is just one collect this giant collection of watches. It's just one part of your portfolio.
0: Yeah, I think I think obviously that's fair, and uh, I mean, there's lots of people that sort of say, oh, you know, the the year-on-year return for Rolex watches has been something like seven percent over the last ten years, which obviously is, is probably not going to go on forever. Um, it, but, you know, people justify crazy things. Now, you're absolutely right. You know, if I was to take that ten thousand dollars and put it into, uh, you know, a Vanguard VTS, you know, a, a, and a Vanguard exchange traded fund, yeah, chances are it's probably going to outpace how much my Rolex is worth.
1: But that's no um, fun.
0: Yeah, it's it's no fun and, and the, at the end of the day I'm also then I don't have a watch. Um, I could go and uh I could go and as I said buy that that $500 watch from the mall every um you know 2 years but you've got to then consider well $500 over 2 years well that's that's 2.5% of my initial investment um pay you know. Uh, maybe we see market returns normally of around um you know 7% suddenly it kind of actually seems like yeah well you know look if I can sort of anticipate that my watch is maybe going to you know, go up in value a little bit. Maybe it's not so completely irrational. Um, a little of it, a lot of it is, of course. Um, a lot of it's completely dumb, and a lot of it's me justifying it to myself. But I can kind of see that that mentality would extend to um, when we're talking about super wealthy people. Uh, it's all about investing for them. They don't they don't want any expenses. They don't care about dropping ten million dollars on something so long as it maintains its value. So long as it's actually contributing to their wealth. If They're contributing ten million dollars to an expense. Hell no, they're not going to want to do that. Um, you'll find that some of these ex- incredibly wealthy people are uh, are incredibly cheap um, when it comes to expenses. You know, one-time things, they, they spend that money and it's gone forever. Um, but when it comes to accumulating assets, yeah, may, maybe it is the case. All right. Um, quickly, we're going to get on to money laundering. Uh, where's the Jesus Insiders question? Oh, sorry. Yeah, you yeah, yeah, go. Yeah, we've already answered that. Money laundering. All right. So... Um, Someone had a really, really fantastic question. And I'm going to go hunt it down. Uh, in the meantime, you guys discuss money laundering.
3: So Sam, uh, we've yeah, been- Yeah, <laughs> we're Yeah, you've, uh, uh, I see a lot of people in the comment section are asking for your opinions on all of this uh, and we haven't heard a whole lot from you. So do you want to take the lead on on money laundering?
4: Uh, yes, yeah, sure. Awesome. Uh, no problem. Perfect. so money laundering uh well again uh michael asked me uh i'm not gonna lie pretty last minute so it's right on the bus there <laughs> to prep for this one uh but look obviously uh money laundering um relation to michael's video when it comes to i assume we're still relating this to art correct or
0: that's right yep yeah yep. Well, well money laundering, yeah I mean, yeah obviously that's a it's a thing for art yeah
4: yeah, yeah, of course. Um, well, uh, I mean, like it's it's one of those things, I guess. Like when you kind of look at it from um, a high level, look, it, it just it just it just makes logical sense. Like, why why would you not do this uh, as a person of high net worth, right? Um, I mean, it looks relatively straightforward, and I, I guess technically, like you know, it's not it's not illegal if you uh, do it the right way, I suppose. But in essence, like you know, you are just uh, you know. I guess, uh, however you got your money, Uh, you you can legally, I guess, translate it into clean cash, uh, however you got it. And uh, in terms of what I think about it, well, I I mean, like, I guess from a social perspective, uh, there there are a lot of, I guess, downsides. And since, you know, I'm a big believer in, I guess, uh, social equality, uh, in terms of economics. And look, when at the end of the day, someone's avoiding, like, you know, a crap ton of taxes just because, you know, they want to get richer. Uh, yeah, it kind of, like, steams my beans a little bit, I guess. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I just also, I just primarily look at it from a socialist perspective. I don't really focus too much, uh, I guess, in terms of the economic impacts, but what do you guys think?
0: Yeah, Sam is our resident bloody communist shill uh, in an office full of hardcore capitalists, so it's good to get it. Yeah, 100%. 100%.
4: <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah disgusting anyway um but i think uh to to your point actually the jesus insider asked a really really good question around it um would eliminating tax credit for charitable art donations be a fiscally beneficial move for economies or countries
4: this is really uh, uh, that is a very interesting question yeah um because i
0: mean on, on one hand um, you have to think, oh, well, you know, art, is uh, one of those, those things that's important. You know, you know, people love art and, you know, it kind of carries culture and, you know, all that sort of stuff. But, uh, maybe it's one of those things where, Hey, you know, if you want to really get the tax benefit out of something, uh, maybe it has to be a cash donation so that there's none of this funny business going on.
4: Yeah. Well, that's know, right? if You remove the tax credits. You kind of blow like a big, pretty big hole in terms of the whole, whole process. Uh, and what I think would happen was that, uh, you know, if you did do that, you know, uh, some other vehicle would essentially replace uh, uh, as, as a way to essentially, you know, try and avoid taxes or money launder. Because if you close
3: uh, one loophole, what we'll do is we'll just open up another loophole somewhere else.
4: Yeah. yeah Honestly, it,
3: yeah, we'll just pester politicians to get another, you know, find some uh, loophole like that.
0: And I think the other big thing is what... Um, look, look. Yeah, playing around with art is, is obviously a very effective way to avoid taxes, but um, it's by it, it's in, in many ways, not the most efficient way. Um, there are more efficient ways. It just so happens that art kind of has this air of prestige about it. Uh, and, you know, you can kind of also get wings named after you and, you know, you get to attend all of these fancy galas. And it's kind of like a, a nice fancy way of getting invited to a whole lot of free dinners to, to basically pass around bits and pieces of paintings.
4: Yeah, you can pretty much hide in plain sight, essentially, if I'm doing it like, um, you know, it's like no one's really going to question you donating stuff to a charity. That's like, you know, who's, who's going to question you on that, right? Uh, so I think it's just like a safe, clean way to do it. Everyone kind of really does it already. So why not get in on the action while you can? And then you know, let's say, yeah, if they remove tax codes, then, you know, I'm sure you're accountable for something else.
3: <laughs> I think the biggest issue, though, is the tax credits themselves. Like we give giving the tax credits. Uh, because ultimately at the end of the day that is uh, you know paid for by the taxpayer and if people are wondering well, wait a second you know no one's actually giving them money no 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 it's not what it is though is the government you know has a budget that it needs uh, to you know ahead of time so it needs to raise the money to, to fund that budget and if it can't raise that money then it has to, Raise taxes, and uh, that means it comes at the expense of everyone else who who doesn't, who doesn't have the capability of, you know, purchasing a uh, a expensive painting, then marking up its price, and then donating it back to uh, usually themselves or to uh, another institution, uh, so they can then write it off as, uh, you know, a huge uh, tax deduction. Like that's just the average person doesn't have that capability, and so at the end of the day, the average person then needs to have higher taxes because of that
0: um, yeah yeah and it's an interesting one where i think the the most hard done by person uh in in most countries around the world in terms of taxes uh is the regular old employee you know nine to five employee gets their gets paid their taxes the company by default you know sort of uh, pays pays to the irs in advance for them and and that's kind of it uh it's very very hard to do anything with that kind of income and you're just sort of there it's it's the other alternative types of income that obviously you can do a lot of things to expense. Um, one, of the, one of the simplest, most elegant solutions to getting around taxes uh, if you're a wealthy, wealthy individual, um, you know very, very 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 rich. Uh, let's say you're worth 10 million dollars and you live almost entirely off uh, your invested invested capital and let's say it's invested in exclusively in shares, uh, what you can effectively do is this. You know, let's say you don't want to pay um, let's say you're just living off your dividends, um, and you don't want to pay tax on those dividends. Well, okay, no worries. What you can do uh, is, is this. You buy up a big portfolio of shares, right? Um, you know, let's say you take a selection of, of 100 companies, okay? Uh, and then you hold on to them for a year. Beautiful. No worries. Chances are, uh, hopefully, if you've invested somewhat wisely, uh, a fair few of those countries' have a, a com- companies have appreciated in value, and, of course, some of them would have gone backwards. That's the nature of the, the game, right? Um, what you do at the end of the year is you get paid out your dividends and that goes to fund your lifestyle. But um, in, in, in the United States, obviously, the, the financial years and the calendar years are all different. But uh, in Australia, our financial years are done from July 1st to, to June 30th. So on, at the end of June, you look at your portfolio and you look at all of the companies that have done the worst, you know all of the companies that are underperforming, and you sell them sell them on june 30th now in that year you can sort of say oh i made a capital loss um you know i sold these companies and uh, unfortunately i lost you know let's say a hundred thousand dollars on them um you know i got a hundred thousand dollars in dividend income but you know I, I kind of didn't actually really make any money there because you know all of this capital loss yeah bad bad year of investing Boo-hoo, poor me and the government goes okay yeah no worries well you didn't really make anything there so no no tax for you now that seems fair and logical and most people don't have too much of a problem with that. but what you can then do is on July 1st, you just buy back exactly those same companies all over again. Effectively, you've lost money, but you're in the same net position. It just so happens that you've kind of arbitraged it over well time, arbitraged it over the course of two financial years. Uh, and now you hold on to those shares and hey you know hopefully in the next year they do better or um, you know in some other some other company does worse and you do the same thing over and over and over again. Um, so in terms of like pure simplicity, that's a much more effective system of, you know, getting away with not paying taxes as opposed to fucking juggling art around the world. It just so happens that art has, you know, some of this intrinsic benefit. One, you know, it's a little bit more, it's a bit better in terms of, you know, if you, if you get seen doing it, it's like, yeah, you know, I'm just donating to a museum, aren't I a great person? You know, I have a, I have a, a wing in the net named after me. I've got to be a fantastic person. Um, have, but had it's certainly not as efficient, and it is not as, um, you know, certainly not as straightforward as, as some of the other other loopholes out there. Um, but, yeah, uh, great question. Now, the final question that I want to answer is, uh, if a banana sticky tape to a wall can sell for $150,000, why am I not rich? Uh, you're not rich because you didn't think to do it, and uh, that's why.
3: Should have done it first, that,
0: honestly. Should have done it first. Should have done it first. Beautiful. Well, look, um, I am going to have to wrap it up there because it's 1 a.m. here in Australia land um, and we did go a bit over time, but that's okay because obviously we spent much too long on Brazil and um, that's my completely my own fault. Uh, So apologies for that. Thanks for everyone that is watching. Uh, and of course, thanks to all of my guests, we will hopefully be doing the stream. I'd imagine on Saturday for Thursday's video, as per usual. Knock on wood. Oh, I do have I do have
3: one thing because Jesus Insider asked the question that I was thinking uh, about the you know selling off to you know lower taxes. So he says, in that case, wouldn't that trigger massive slips, allowing people to buy up the next day at a way lower price? Yes, but you have to know ahead of time who exactly is going to sell, what they're going to sell, and why they're going to sell, it. and that means you have to know when they originally bought it. Um, so that they, they can register their loss. So good luck with that. Good luck figuring out who exactly is going to sell on this date um, and what they're going to sell. Good luck with that. Yeah, so.
0: Yeah. Interesting one. Uh, cool. All right. Thanks, guys. So I'm going to close it all down. Um, hopefully we'll see you all on Saturday.
3: All right. Looking forward to it.